Hello and welcome back to Scarves Around the Funnel, the podcast dedicated to Heart and Midlothian, the football club with the most stylish manager in Scotland. I am Laurie Dunsire, joined by probably not the most stylish man in Connecticut, Mark Donaldson. A, you're a cheeky bastard and B, you're a souk. <laughs> Why ever do you say that? Because who's our guest today? Our guest is the most stylish manager in Scottish football, the man who has returned to Tynecastle and now on the show. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Robbie Nielsen. Absolute pleasure, lads, and I'll take that title. Thanks very much. I don't know if competition's that great, right enough. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> just remember, when, when Stendhal took over at Hearts, Graham Spears called him the most unkempt, or called him unkempt. Um, uh, a, a, bit, a, bit, a bit scruffy. So have we gone from, like, Steptoe and Son to are you being served? <laughs> it's all downhill for you here now, Mark. Well, I mean, we we asked Twitter for some for some good questions for you, and you know, we got the likes of Serial Sock Thief saying, "My other half still wants to know where Robbie Nielsen gets his shirts." Um, and we also got <laughs> Steve asking any specific hair products, and who is his tailor? So, um, <laughs> come on, now. come on. Well, my, my wee mate works for Dar- Matt Darcy. Matt Sly, so I've known him for a while now, so he sorts me out with the gear. So he produced a couple of suits for me for uh, the unveiling of the press, so he's the man. So, so we're going to be kind of kind to you because you're doing us the, the honour of coming on our show. But I have to start with a, a wee curveball. Uh, was that a waistcoat or was that really high-waisted trousers? <laughs> it was a waistcoat, but I uh, made the mistake of not unbuttoning it. So it looked, uh, looked at the high trousers, but... Thank you for clarifying. Okay. <laughs> so we are going to talk to Robbie about his time uh, playing for Hearts. Um, obviously a big focus on a certain season uh, 14, 15 years ago, back in 05-06, when Robbie was right back and Hearts were, of course, doing very well at the time. Uh, we'll talk a bit about his experiences on the field and maybe I'll look ahead to to what's to come off the field as well. So first up, Robbie, um, you know, welcome back to Hearts. I suppose a strange situation in many ways, but but how are you? I think mean, you've been back at work about two weeks, is it or so now? A little bit different than when you normally get back into pre-season training after the summer. Yeah, it's been strange to be honest. Usually, when you you take over in a new role, you know, you get in the first day, you meet all the players, you sit down, you have a chat with them, you get and watch them train. Then you'll meet the staff and do the usual stuff. But this year it's been, or this time it's been very, very strange. You know, we've had some Zoom chats with the players just for a catch-up really and, you know, tried to speak to the staff. But, you know, the players are on furlough as well. So it makes it difficult to, to actually do anything. Even with the planning of when we were going to come back and what we're going to do is still a little bit up in the air with the court case that's going on. And so it's been, a, it's been different. But I think once we get back in, whatever date that will be, it will get a bit to some, back to some sort of normality where you're getting a bit of interaction with the players. In terms of when you get back on the training field, has there been talk about how that will work exactly? Because obviously, although some of the pandemic restrictions are relaxing a little bit, it's still going to have some impact, I assume, on how things work? Yeah, the, the first week we come back, we have to do socially distance training in small groups. So that will look like probably... Six to eight players, reduced coaching staff, and 
Obviously, the players will need to get tested before they come in. There'll be non-contact training for the first week just to get the protocols ready and get them in line. And then after the first week, we just go back to kind of normal training. So getting that first week out of the way will be... Uh, it's, it's good getting them back into, to be honest with you, but it's just it's a bit of a... You know, a bit of nonsense sometimes that first week's training because it's a bit fake. You know, there's no contact. Mm-hmm. You're just getting the players back in, but ultimately we need to do it. I thought you said sixty-eight players for a moment there, and is that taking oh, you man. back to <laughs> taking you back to your days at Hearts? We'll when... that in the next, the next twenty, thirty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess it would be good to you know we're going to talk about that season, but um, the season before oh five oh six, so. 2004, 2005. That was a campaign where I suppose you really became a mainstay in the Hearts side and you played 50 games, all starts that season. Um, only one player actually played more than you that campaign and that was a certain Craig Gordon. Uh, I want to quickly talk about the UEFA Cup that season because um, you'd already had some experience against Stuttgart a few years previously, but that campaign, you had home and away to Braga, away to Feyenoord, home to Schalke, away to Basel, and at home to Ferencvaros. And you played every minute of those games. I mean, what was it like coming up against that level of opposition and experiencing those sort of trips? It was brilliant, to be honest with you. I went on the Stuttgart trip previously, but that would have been, am I right, saying probably about 2000, 2001, something like that? Yeah. 2000, yeah. yeah. Played them home and away. So I, I came off the bench over there for about the last couple of minutes, and then... I came off the bench pretty early in the home game. I think Gary yeah. walked after about 15, 20 minutes and came on. So yeah, it was a, it, yeah. you know, when you play Tyne Castle under the lights in a European game, it's just got a different kind of magic about it. Honestly, it's, it's hard to explain. You know, you have your, your league games, which are great under the lights, but when you have the European games, it's just something different about it. You know, I don't know if it's at the time of year that they usually come at. You know, you're usually like September, October. You know, and it's just got a different feel to it. So, going into the the UEFA Cup games that year, it, it was, it's a lot easier then than it is now to get into the group stages. Only I think we only played one, maybe one round mm-hmm. against Braga. Yeah, yep. and then we were straight into the group stages. So, the the home game against Braga was at Murrayfield, if I remember. Yeah, and I can't remember Mark De Vries, I think was Mark scored and. Some of the Bednar maybe. I seem to remember some of the goals. I mean, we got a decent lead in the first leg and then we went out there. And I don't know if anybody's beaten the Brag or if anybody's went, but the stadium there's phenomenal with a big rock behind it. And you get a lift up to the stadium and it's just the whole build up to the game. It's just totally different. So, yeah, those games were, a, were an experience. And then, obviously, we went to Feyenoord and... Uh, you got pumped. We got pumped. And <laughs> I always remember, like, you had... Uh, I think it was Solomon Kalu and there was Kite. three up front: Kalu, Coy, and Castellan. Not bad, um, that front I three. Re- yeah. I remember saying we were interviewing Hulett the night before, and he's like, "I may play all three. We want to win this game comfortably." Jesus, that was a trying trying to trying to get over the halfway line was a, was an effort uh, in times in that one. Wasn't it? It, certainly went. it was a it was a tough day to be fair. They they scored early. I think Coy scored after about twenty five minutes or something. And then it was backs to the walls for a while after that. But it was uh, that was an experience, to say the least, because I think they thought, you know, going through against Braga was a good result, but we then had to step up another level when you're playing against the likes of Feyenoord and even Schalke as well. You know, it's a different level of team, that's for sure. I want to take you to the north of Switzerland on the 25th of November, 2004, St. Jakob Park. So this is 
Basel against Hart and Midlothian. John Robertson, obviously in charge at that point. Hearts really needing an unlikely win to give them a realistic chance of progressing from Group A. Dennis Wynas gives the Jambos a lead. Cancelled out with 14 minutes to go by Cesar Carignano. But with a minute left, Joe Hamill crosses from the left. The ball is knocked down off a Basel defender by Phil Stamp. Now, what the hell were you doing in the box in the 89th minute, given you'd never scored a goal before? We, we got a message from Dissy89 who said, what were your thoughts going through your head just before you hit the ball? Went through my head. If you watch it again, so what happened was that the ball got crossed in and I was just kind of falling up behind. I think it was Stampy at the back post. Mm-hmm. Stampy's knocked it down, it's came off someday. And as I was running into strike it, the big centre half was coming out to smash me. I don't know if you see it. So it was one of them that I was running in and I just hit it as hard as I could and then just prepared myself to get smashed off the centre half. So I didn't see it going in at all. I had no idea what happened until <laughs> you know, I got off the ground and everyone's running up to get the cheer for the Hearts fans. So it was a case of just getting there, hit it as hard as you can towards the goal and then protect yourself and make sure you don't get smashed. So uh, that was my memory of it. Speaking of um, protecting yourself, uh, thanks for scoring because I went nuts in commentary for Radio 4th when you scored and I needed to be protected by security because our commentary position was right in the middle of the Basel fans. So I appreciate the health and safety thought when you scored the goal for, for your pals. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh, I, I don't know if the, if he's remember, but I think I'm sure it's the Basel ground that the fans could drink within the stadium. So yeah, there was a, there's a shopping centre in there as well, and, and you just took you got the beer for the shopping centre, went into the game, got pissed at the game, and it was it was it was a decent atmosphere, wasn't it? It was a great atmosphere, and as you can imagine, by the 89th minute, I think all the fans were probably into the eighth or ninth beer. <laughs> Yeah, the time to go, and so probably the majority have never seen it again either, like myself. But would remember the celebration. Do Do you think? Um, I know we we started to speak about the Stuttgart game. Do you think if you instead of Gordon Petrich had that chance late on at Tynecastle, given the prowess you you showed in front of goal in Basel, that you would have scored that chance late on that would have put Hearts through? Unlike Petrich, simple answer: No, Mark. Really? No. I think. Yeah, I remember. I remember the chance very clearly. I think it. It came in for the right-hand side, am I right? And it dropped in and it dropped in by Gorda and he just smashed it. But uh, that would have been some night that because I think we just needed one goal to go yep, through. one more. Mm-hmm. They, to be fair, they had a decent team as well, didn't they? They did. Balikov was a player. He scored in the, the first leg with a, the free kick. It's interesting that, that obviously, um, Laurie's a big Serie A fan. He likes Roma. I do the Serie A over here. And the likelihood is that we're going to end up with a guy who took charge of both Stuttgart and... Schalke against Hearts in charge of Milan next season, Ralph Ranić, And I remember, remember speaking to him after the Stuttgart game, Rob, the home game. And uh-huh. do you remember they put Kevin James up front near the end? Yeah. Right. He's like, I thought this was the UEFA Cup, not NBA. Who is this man? But he was happy because they got through. But yeah. that, was, and that was a nuts end into a game, the home game against Stuttgart. And for, for my debut at Tynecastle in a European game, I don't think you could ask for any more. Because it was no. a phenomenal atmosphere, you know. It was just you get that, just the feeling when you're out there, even just in the warm up, the whole place is buzzing. So I remember big Kev James. I had a big lamp post coming on. <laughs> I think he's a policeman in Australia now. The last I heard, yeah, yeah. Someone mentioned wow. that. That that came up in that came up in a show one week. Actually, someone mentioned. Someone sent a picture actually of him as a as a policeman. But I mean, the fact obviously. You know, you're a right back, Robbie, and I would say a, a fairly defensive-minded right back. I mean, was that part of Hadrobo basically 
given his license to go forward? Because before the equaliser, I remember, Hearts were under a right bit of pressure in that game. I mean, when Basel scored, it kind of felt like it had been coming, but a draw wasn't really going to be much good to us. So had, had Robbo just said, look, get forward and go for it, we kind of need a goal here? See, to be honest, Laurie, it was a really funny period. That that was just, I think, as um, Romanov started to come in. So we we had, we went, I remember going to the game in Basel when there was like a few hangers on, for want of a better word, kind of hangers <laughs> on, and, you know, watching everything. And we're in the dressing room before the game and there's like guys just standing watching, you know, like these kind of Eastern European guys, not speaking to anybody. And it was like a real weird atmosphere, you know, but it was like a, us together as a group with Robbo mm-hmm. and Marky stuck together, you know. And even after the game, we obviously we were all celebrating on the pitch. We went into this, the changing rooms to celebrate, and one of them just went up and turned the music off and said, "No, we don't celebrate. We we won here that we expect to win." And everyone was like, "What's happening here?" So it was a really that was the beginning of the kind of weirdness that started to come into the club. Just at that point, my, that was my first memory of it. Really, you know, when we had. You know, just there was a starting to become a divide. What's your favourite Romanov memory? Um, punching um, Roman Bedmar on a pre-season tour <laughs> when we had a, I don't know if you, you boxing. Yeah, I remember they had a, a boxing fight, didn't they? Roman Ro, Roman Bednar thought he was a bit of a boxer, so he, <laughs> he he'd been going over pre-season with, with Vlad about how he boxes and Vlad boxed as well. So a pair of gloves each. It produced after the game, so they're all in a big scone. Roman was no Roman was like six foot, whatever. Two, <laughs> and Vlad was quite wee, so about five five. So Roman was taking it nice and easy because he didn't want to punch him. And then all of a sudden, Romanoff just opened up and put him on his ass. <laughs> and, uh, Roman, I never said that ever again. That was unbunt. I've got visions of Rocky Four with Ivan Drago against <laughs> <laughs> against Rocky Balboa. Yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> so the, the takeover obviously was completed in the latter stages of that 2004-2005 season. Um, Robbo obviously did not last very long in the um, Romanov regime. George Burley was brought in as, a, as well as a host of new players. Did it feel like something special was about to happen during that kind of summer with this influx? Or was it really just, was there so much going on it was really hard to take it all in? It was, uh, it was a kind of strange period because I think we came back memory, I can't remember it that clearly, but I remember coming back and we didn't really have a lot of players when we were up at Rickerton at the time, training. And I remember George's pre-season overall, it was one of the first ones I ever did that was very much just, just ball-orientated, very little running. You know, we first day we were in, we were just playing wee games and, and it was all about the, you know, enjoying the game and then we started to bring in, like, so Rudy came in, um, Bednar came in as well, Pospisil came in, then Jankowski, so you, then Takis, and you started to see, right, we're actually having a pop here. And then when you start to see them in training, you realise what good players they are. So it was a, that was a slow process. I, I don't think it was right away we thought, well, we're going to have a great team here. It was just slowly, you know, because I think we went over to the Republic Island for the pre-season games. I, th- I, th- I can't remember who we played, but it wasn't, weren't great games. You know, it wasn't great performances, but he started. This team started to gel a wee bit. And to be fair, George, I thought George was really, really good at getting a group together, getting them as a team, and getting the, the buy-in for the players and the enjoyment of football. And I think if if he'd asked everyone, he'd a 
you know, they went for a beer with George because they had a great personality and I think it started to build through that pre-season. I can't remember who we played, but I seem to remember down south, I think. For, yeah, there was, I think there was a game against Hull. It was interesting, um, someone tweeted, uh, Slavering Pleb, that's their Twitter name, um, said, were you concerned with the seemingly never-ending supply of new right-backs? And interesting, so the biggest pre-season friendly, I suppose, was the Tynecastle game against Middlesbrough, where they made a free entry, and I think it was about 15,000 there. Sebastian Schemmel played as a trialist in that game at right-back. And did you, I don't know if you, did you miss it for injury, or? Because I don't think you played in that I think I was injured for the whole game. I don't know if I was injured for that one. I might have been. I don't know. You were on. You were on the bench um, at Hull because um, Schemmel started. I don't know. I want to. I think they were. You know, they were. They were bringing in players in every position. And at that stage for me, it was just a case of fighting to try and stay in the team because I knew by that point when they bring in a European Championship winning left back, there's a good possibility they're going to bring in a decent right back as well. So. I think it kept me on my toes, making sure I, you know, try to perform as well as I could to try and stay in the team. So it was, yeah, there was there was a number of right backs came in over the course of that season, but I managed to kind of see it out just by digging it out a lot of the time. I remember the the the, the pre-season. I think you played Berwick. Um, that was the game on the Saturday, I think. And then East Fife. I think Brellier played, and he wasn't he sure initially about Brellier, was he? And then suddenly he's he's become a, a mainstay of the team. Yeah, look, I always thought Julian was a top player. I think the, he, he was at Inter Milan as a kid or they brought him from there. Yeah. So he's one of those, he was one of those players that did the dirty work, a bit of an enforcer on the pitch. And you need that within your team, especially the way that, that team played where you had Paul Hartley, Zeke, bombing forward. You had, you know, Michelinus at one side. You had Rudy on the other side. You had two strikers. So you needed somebody sitting in front of that back four that was very... You know, defensively minded, you know, liked doing the dirty work, and he certainly did that. I think he gave us a, a real base to play from. And also, one of the things about him was he was, he was happy to do that, you know, he was happy to be the yeah. quiet guy that just did his job and more of a you know, kind of enforcer. So that's that. And I think also, the thing about teams is if you know, if everyone knows their place in the team, you know, not everyone's going to be a superstar, no, everyone's going to score all the goals, but I felt in that team that everyone knew their place, you know, whether you were like myself who just, you know, was committed every week and just tried to give a, a level performance or whether you were, you know, like a Rudy who was scoring all the goals or a Zeke, you know, getting all the highlights, but the goals and things. Every, everyone knew their position within the team and that for me was one of the key things about the success in it. What was the deal with how quickly you started games? That's one of the things I remember most about that season and that, if you had Hearts half-time, full-time, especially for the first few months, um, you, you were cashing out because you started so quick. Um, and then by the time you maybe lost a bit of gas, the games were already over. There was a game against Aberdeen. I mean, you were 3-0 up uh, by half-time. Was, was, was there a reason for the, for the quick start? Did, did Burley feel that maybe the players didn't quite have the 90, but they could get the job done before that? What happened? No, I just I, I think there was a, a belief in the team that when we turned up at these games that we would implement how we wanted to play on the game. You know, so no matter where we went, home and away, it was like, well, this is what we're going to do. And we were very, you know, there wasn't a lot of build-up play in the team. It was very much, you know, get it forward, get it wide, get the ball in the box and get support in there. So you would have, you know, like so Miko going down the line, putting deliveries in. You would have Rudy come in at one side, you would Paul Hartley going in late from midfield and you would have two strikers in there attacking it. So it was pretty 
there, there wasn't a lot of tactical work in it or anything. It was just a case of, we're hearts, we're going to turn up, we're going to beat you. And that was it. I got a quick quiz question for you. That the start to that season was fantastic. I, I mean, I don't think I'll, I'll ever see Hearts start a season as well again and, until the the championship next season under under Robbie Nielsen. Um, but but here's the quiz question: Hearts won their first game at Kilmarnock, but they went behind. Who scored Kelly's opener that day? Easy. He did. And now you're with him, Stephen Nesmith. Remember that? I know. I do remember it. You know, because that was a wee test for us. You know, actually that first day when we went down there, I remember it. Because I think he scored, did not score quite early in the game. Yeah, 11 minutes. Yeah, Rudy scored in 12 minutes. And then we went straight up at park and scored there, and it kind of settled the nerves. Because mm-hmm. although we were, you know, the pre-season was no bad, we had a good result against Hull. And expectation levels were there because we'd signed all these players. But to go down there and go behind early was a kind of test of character because, you know, it's, uh, there was question marks about whether the guys coming in from abroad could handle Scottish football. You know, could they handle the 200 mile an hour, the blood and thunder of it? And they certainly did that. You know, I think we were, ended up 4-1, four, 4-2. Four, 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 two, four, two, yeah. 4-2 in that game, yeah. So <clears throat> those opening 10, so it's 26 points from a possible 30. And Carmen Carter tweeted us saying, what did George Burley do so right to win so many games in a row? Obviously the first eight back-to-back league games in a row. Now, you talked about some of the players he had out there, but having been a player yourself and having been a manager yourself, there, there must be a bit more to it than actually. What, what did George do to get such consistency and such good performances on such a regular basis in those first few months? George kept it very simple, to be honest. We always remember it. And, you know, I, I liked a lot of his stuff and something I take into my own stuff that I do with the players as well. You know, he was very, very positive. I always remember we used to laugh when we were in the, the pre-match meetings. So we would go through it, we'd put the opposition team up, so George was right, right up on the board, and it was always like, you could never tell what their formation was, because he would just write it all over the shop, when he was writing it on the blackboard. <laughs> but he would run, he would put it on the board, and then he would go through, he'd go like that, shite, shite, really shite, horrendous, don't know how he's in a game for them, mobbed up, horrific, my God, he's shite, and then we go through every team, I didn't matter who you were playing it. So that was so that was the Edinburgh derbies, but how about the other games? <laughs> but honestly, it was like we used to have a chuckle in the in the in our room because we'd be coming. Out and who's he going to hammer the day? <laughs> what he did is he, you know, the, a lot of the foreign boys had never played in Scottish football before, so they didn't go to the opposition. You know, so we had like guys like myself and maybe Elvis and Paul, but your Mikos, your Faisis, Ibitals, Brelia, they didn't know, so they they were going to the games thinking. Well, the manager's told us they're absolutely rubbish, so we're going to go and batter them. So he was very, George was very much about the positives of our team and about how we were miles better than everyone else. And it was, like I said, there wasn't a lot of tactical stuff in it. It was just like, keep them fit, keep them happy, keep them enjoying it, keep them together, and just be positive. And it, it worked, to be fair, at the start. Do you remember, this is a Stuart message, mate, saying, do you remember how you found out that Burley was was getting removed from his position, or, or how was that broken to to the team? Yeah, we were up in um, the Dalmahoy, so we got up to Dalmahoy for a pre-match meal, and we were sitting in the up in one of the suites up there waiting. And usually, I think we're in there like about half eleven or something. So we're all sitting, and you know, it's, things are light in football. Like John McLean was the assistant, I think, at the time, and John wasn't with us either, so we didn't have John there. And we didn't have George, so we're all just sitting waiting. And I think at the start, it was like a joke. You know, somebody was saying, ah, George is, George is away. 
and everyone was like, ah, right, good one. And then it started to, as the time went on, you know, it got to like quarter to 12, 12 o'clock, and we're all sitting there wondering what's going on. And then I think John McGlynn came in and spoke to us and said, look, lads, George is away. And there was that kind of shock with everyone. But to be honest, it wasn't a massive shock because the regime had been so erratic that things were happening in the background that, you know, he, 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 if it happened at another period where the guy, the manager had won X amount of games, you'd be going, I can't believe that. But just the way things were going at Hearts at the time, I was surprised, but I wasn't shocked just because it was so erratic. A lot of people say, what was the, the one reason um, for for Burley being sacked? And um, that that book that, that we, we all took part in, and I wrote Believe, right? And got lots of quotes from different things. And um, Elvis wrote the, the foreword as well. I'm not sure if there's one specific thing. I mean, ultimately, I think the man in charge didn't want someone else at the football club to get more praise than him because he's an egomaniac. Is that fair? I would agree with that. Yeah, I think George was um, George was doing a phenomenal job and he was getting a lot of um, attention from the media. And I think, you know, Vlad, Vladimir thought Hearts was him. And it, yes. And it was becoming, you know, the players and George was a club. So, yeah, I can see that. I don't know the real reason behind it, but I can see that. I could see that happening. I mean, the way that it came about... Um... And look, I said to George, folks, will you give me stuff? Um, uh, you, you can be anonymous or whatever. He's like, give me stuff. Quote me all you like. Here's the minutes from the board meeting and everything like that. And they were trying to make up, they were trying to make up shit that George at, at times was, was coming in and there was a smell of alcohol in his breath. Now, we've all been on a night out. We've all come in. It, it was like John Smith, the Labour leader, um, before he died, when, when he was in power as well. If you can do the job to the best of your ability, you turn up on time, it doesn't really matter what you got up to the night before. But they tried to put some slurs on him that he'd, he'd done some, some inappropriate things um, and also was, was turning up at training with alcohol in his breath. It's basically a smokescreen. He might have been, but it had nothing to do with the quality of his work. Yeah, I, know. I think, you know, ultimately as a football manager, your job's to win football matches. Of course. That's what George did. You know, and he had a, you know, a... a Great way with the players, you know. Even now, when I when I bump into him, we have a great chat, you know. And he's, uh, I liked him. I really enjoyed working with him. Was it, you know, it's a question that always gets asked of me. Was it going to be a, you know, would it have lasted long term, the way the team was? Mm, I, I would doubt it. You know, it lasted the full season, just the way that the, the team was and the club in the background. But definitely, in the period George was there was phenomenal. Sorry, Laurie. A lot of people have, have said that, Rob, about. Some some fans think, well, why not? But you you were obviously involved. I just wonder though. Try to play devil's advocate because I'm with you. I'm not I'm not convinced. It's a great pub argument because there's never going to be a right or wrong answer. But I, I, I'm with you in that I'm not sure it would have lasted the season. However, taking you forward to the February when Hearts played Aberdeen in the cup, that was when Takis Fisas showed up and was told he had the flu, and Jose Gonçalves started on the opposite side from you. So there were players like him and, and Mirsad Beshlia who'd made his debut that day. And remember the seven that came in in January. So I know that was under Graham Ricks, but with them strengthening the squad, it's impossible to say, isn't it? But they, they certainly might have done something in the second half of the season. Would they have gone into that January, February, still top of the table, in your opinion? I, for me, I, I thought that the big turning point for us was the just the New Year game against Celtic at home. And I think... That the two all... Uh, the, the, the 3-2 defeat, yeah. defeat, yeah. We were 2-0 uh, we up early 
Yes. And Ian Bryan sent off Tacky, I think. That, that's uh, right. Tackle on Maloney, never a red. That was a big, big turning point, I thought, in the season. Because at that, if we turned them over at Tynecastle at that point, you know, I thought we had a, a chance. But that mm-hmm. game obviously didn't go our way. And then going into the January window, that's when, you know, the recruitment in the summer was a Champions League winner, a European Championship winner. Rudy Scatchell had moved for like three million to Marseille. He had Bednar, he had Pospisil, you know. And then we went into the, the January window and the, the level of player that was coming in wasn't anywhere near the same. Juho, Chris Hackett, Beshlia. What could, could he have ever done the Bosnian bullet? I mean, he was fanning blanks. Did he show anything in training that you thought, this, this kid might? Or was he hopeless? He was, to be fair, he was a lovely, lovely guy. But we, I remember when before he was coming in, everyone was talking about this is the fastest player in Europe. <laughs> that's, what, that's what everyone was saying. That's what the club was saying, you know, to, to the, us. You know, and this guy is going to be phenomenal. And, and he came in and we were like, still waiting for it. When did you start running? <laughs> you know, so it was, uh, I, it was a strange one, that. Because he was, he was billed as this big thing. I think they paid like 850000 Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> yeah. Lira. So he was, he was meant to be this, you know, flying machine and basically it wasn't. You know, nice, nice guy and a decent player. But I get the feeling that, you know, he didn't really fancy it either. You know, he'd come yeah. over and throw on a decent salary and he thought, you know what, not really that interested. When you start with... Really nice guy. You can uh, tell. Yeah, you can tell. be disrespectful, but by the way, Rixie was a character, wasn't he? Him and his his cafe creme little cigarettes or cigarros or whatever they were called. Yeah, Rixie was to be fair. He was a. Yeah, I, I thought he was a really, really, really nice guy. He, I think he was a, a really good coach, like really top top coach. I just think that he, he didn't really enjoy the managerial side of it. Mm. You know, he, he'll maybe say that himself. I think that you know when you you have to drop a player or you have to do this, you know, so certain things as a manager that, that can be difficult to do, you know, and I, I felt that, that Rixie was like a top coach, like really, some, you know, see some of the details he would give you, just like wee things about your positioning on the pitch, you know, and how you would receive it and things like that were top level, probably the best I've had, but I just don't think he enjoyed the managerial side. I always remember he had a good relationship with the boys and he used to say is, you know, I love a Monday to a Friday, but I effing hate a Saturday. Effing hate them. <laughs> That's Just interesting. Look. What 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 was he like in the in the changing room? Because I remember after press conferences, we used to get one to one the the radio guys, and after the we'd stopped recording, he he'd say to most of us, he said, "Was that okay?" Anything I could. He was he was a ne- kind of a nervous guy. Uh, what was he like in, standing up in front of the boys giving team talks? To be fair, it was it was fine, you know, because he had a really good relationship with the boys. Right. I, I felt like. Rixie had like a the relationship that a, a first team coach would have with the players, as opposed to a manager. You know, there's a, there's a there's a quite a difference. You know, a first team coach will be in with the players. He's kind of he's the bridge between the players and the manager. You know, but when you're the manager, yeah. you have to be slightly more distance. You know, you have to have more difficult conversations with them. You know, sometimes you need to be a bit harsher. You know, with certain things. Whereas Rixie was very much wanted to be. You know, I, I felt like the first team coach because that's what that to be fair, that's what he'd been all along. You know, at, at the highest level. So, talking about Graham Ricks in charge, he was obviously the boss going into February that season. Now, Hearts drew 
1-1 at Tanadice. Now, you'll probably remember, um, even if you don't remember what happened much on the park that game, you'll probably remember a bit around that period of time there was a lot of unrest. Supporters certainly weren't happy at the time, and um, a lot of it was to do with, I think, Graham Ricks had basically admitted he's not making all the decisions with the team, and you lost your place that night at Tanadice to a certain Martin Petras. Do you, do you remember much about the build-up to that? Yeah, we, I remember actually we, we for some, I think, I don't know if it was the day before or the day, it might have actually been the, the morning of the game, we'd come in and we were up at uh, Rickerton and Rixie pulled all the boys together and we were in the uh, indoor Astro and he basically just said to us, look lads, I'm not picking the team. That's it. The owners told us who's going to be playing. We just need to go on it. And obviously right away, everyone, that, that was just all over the place from there. You know, so... It was a difficult one for Rixie. The kind of new stuff was happening in the background, you know, there was loads of different things going on at that, that point, you know, with, you know, rumours about, you know, in-game substitutions and, you know, who was making decisions on this and it was a, it was a, it was a crazy period. But yeah, it was a, I remember, I remember Rixie taking us in and having a chat with everyone and from there, you know, it started to just fall apart after that. And um, this is one of these games, and I, we spoke about it before in the podcast, and I can't remember what the context was, but I was at that game in the, uh, in the, in the way end, and I maintained the Hearts fans made a substitution that night because you were warming up, and Petras was not having a good game. And to be fair to Martin Petras, he played at a good level uh, for Sparta Prague, but wasn't having a great game, and your name was getting sung by the entire away end. And I think Rixie just called you over. And I'm pretty sure you kind of cut across a half of the pitch to get back there to come on. I, it was a, I actually felt really sorry for Martin, to be honest. Martin Petras was, again, actually a very, very good player. He went on to play in like Surrey, Surrey B for a, for a number of years. But um, it, it was a difficult time for him to come in because he got kind of, because there were so many players come in in that January window, they all get categorised together. Mm-hmm. You know, and Martin was actually a really nice guy and he used to speak to him regularly. He found it difficult to settle because everything was going on in the background and then wasn't playing as much as he wanted to and I think and there was issues with his payments as well. There was a lot of problems in the background, you know, for a number of the players that were coming in that, you know, they were promised X amount of money and they weren't getting it paid. I think there was issues with, you know, they were contracted in Kaunas and X amount of money was maybe getting paid in Scotland and things like that. So it was a difficult period for them all. But yeah, I remember the game and, I, you know, it was uh, strange, to be honest with you. You know, you're sitting on the bench and everyone's shouting your name. <laughs> <laughs> did, did they sing your name more that day than when you scored? Well, generally it was Robbie, Robbie, get to. But it was... Uh, <laughs> 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 um, the- Obviously, the, the season did continue with some further highs as well. Um, 2nd of April, 2006, Hibs at Hamden. Um, Gretna were facing uh, Dundee, I think, in the other semi-final, wasn't it? So um, just how big a game was that semi-final with Hibs? Obviously, an Edinburgh derby at Hamden is going to be a big game either way, but did it, did it kind of, was it playing on a lot of your minds, the fact that Celtic and Rangers were already out of the competition? The, the Gretna-Dundee game was the day before. Mm-hmm. So we we knew the score, we knew that Gretna were through, and we knew that obviously whoever won the, the derby at Hamden was going to be playing against a League One, League Two team at the time, or the Championship, whatever they were, a lower league team at the time. The old old second division, so yeah, now would be League One, yeah. 
League One, you know, so we knew that you were going to get into that game as heavy favourites. So going into the the Hibs game at, at Hamden, yeah, the, the, I, I felt that was the final, you know, and I think that probably played out a wee bit in the actual final as well, because the the build up to the Hibs game was phenomenal, you know, even driving through to Hamden, the place was absolutely rammed, you know, obviously you come in the, the heart's end and from about three miles out, the whole place was maroon coming into Hamden and then you come out for the warm-up and the place is packed already. So, yeah, the for me, the, the semi-final was the big game no, and it had a, I felt it had an effect on the final as well. It, it was the third time that campaign that you'd scored four against Hibs. Um, just how enjoyable were those derby games? And apart from, obviously, the great football and talent that was at the club at that time, was there anything else that gave Hart such an edge in those games? Zibby. There, there was a belief, <laughs> a real belief in the team. You know, I think after the first derby, which I think was at home, am I right, in the 1-4-0? Yeah. You know, after that game, we had, you know, Rudy scoring goals, you know, Rudy was, every time we played against him, Rudy was battering him. You know, so we knew we had, we had goals in Rudy in the team. We, Paul, was the same. You know, Paul, at that point, was scoring goals left, right and centre in the big games as well. So, going into the semi-final, we knew, we knew, like, we had guys who already played, like, international players, we had guys that played in Champions League finals and European finals. So, we went into the game full of belief. You know, there was no trepidation at all in the team. And it was a case of just turning up, handling the occasion. And like most of these big games, it's it's not really about who's the better team. It's who who can handle the atmosphere and actually you play a semi-decent level. So Hearts finished second that season. Highest league position in 14 years. But there was still an expectation they'd finish the season with silverware. Now, Scottish Cup final, as we talked about, was against second division Gretna and Jamie Mitchell tweeted in saying the cup final felt like a, a lose-lose situation in some ways for a for a Hearts fan obviously any cup final is going to bring pressure but did you feel any extra pressure for this one because really everyone expected Hearts to win and Gretna had, had, had basically nothing to lose uh, I think I felt it was like one game too far for us to be honest with you I think we'd just come off the back of the Aberdeen game which Got us into the got European Champions League, league yeah. And then obviously we went, went to Ibrox after that, I think, lost to Ibrox. And it was like, it, it felt a wee bit as if, like, I remember at the time as if, right, we've done it. We've, we've made the Champions League qualifiers. You know, we finished in that position in the league. And then, you know, we're going into a game against Gretna where everyone was expecting us to win. You know, and it was like, as you say, it was, it was a kind of lose-lose situation. You know, people were expecting us to go and turn them over. And, yeah, it was... You know, right from the first day of the season, you know, you're talking about, you know, mid July right the way through to the end of May. It was a it was a fair hog, you know, not just physically but also mentally with all the stuff that was going on in the background for the squad. Let's talk about two things from the cup final, if you, if you don't mind. How does the man who make made that tackle describe that tackle he made? Just instinctive to be honest with you at the time, you know, like one of those ones where you see him coming through and he goes by a couple of players and you go, you know, it would have been quite easy just to go, oh, well, he's going to score. But I always felt that he was going through one-on-one with Craigie and I knew Craigie would be able to do something. You know, he'd be able to slow him down or shift him somewhere. So I just made a gamble to go, you know, to, to Craigie's right-hand side because I just felt that it was a boy, David Graham, getting in there 
who's yeah. a mm. when, you, when you get into these situations, generally when they come through, they'll try and shift it onto their good foot to play it. So I felt like, I gambled, but I felt that if, if I went back in there, Craigie would do enough to stop him or slow him down. And then I'd be able to maybe get some sort of contact on it. So I was just lucky that, you know, the timing of it, Craigie shifted him out to the, um, the player's left-hand side and it allowed me just to get in and make the tackle. So a wee bit instinctive, but also, you know, when you're playing, again, playing alongside a top keeper at Craigie, you know, you know, if I was running through 1v1 in the Scottish Cup final against Craig Gordon, I'd mm. have a squeaky bum as well, to be honest with you. You, you think about the two games in 98 that we won and 2006 that we won, and as much as the goals scored were the most important thing, two tackles, your one, and David Weir on Sergio Porini mm. in 98. Do you remember that one at all as well at Celtic Park? Yeah, I was at the game. I was at the game even through, you know, I was also part of the club back then, I was in the youth team and we all went through as a group, you know, and that was, that, that had been like last, last injury time possibly, was it? Yeah, it was right at the end. You know, I was just dropping for Perini and Big Davey, get the big um, Inspector Gadget leg out to go and block it. <laughs> so, I, it's, you know, a, a lot of the time, you know, it's the, the goals scored and rightly so, they get the, the credits, but, you know, there was, there's, a lot of things in games that, that can change it for you. Well, well Mark's but, skipping the fact that although you made an important tackle, you, you, you could almost claim an assist. I don't know if anyone else got a touch because the Hearts goal in the 39th minute came from a throw-in just a couple of yards from the corner flag, one of, one of the attacking weapons you always brought to the game. Um, and Odd-shaped balls, yes, that's a Twitter name, <laughs> tweeted saying, how far can you actually throw the ball and when did you realise you had that <laughs> talent? I, tell you, I can't throw it very far now. <laughs> I'm a bit, not He's got Corona on each hand, a bottle of Corona on each hand. <laughs> can't throw anything. Not as supple as I used to be, but <laughs> it was a, it's, a, it's a dying art, that, the long throwing. There's not many people doing it anymore, but it's, it was, we used it as a threat. Uh, you know, we had, first of all, we had Mark DeFries, obviously, he was like six foot four or something. At times, we would big, bring big Kev James up, who was like six foot 15. And then we had Young <laughs> Jump six foot two. So it was a, I like one of them. It was, I think we, when we look back at the team in 2005, 2006, people think it was this pure football team. That, but to be honest, it wasn't. It was just a. I thought we were very aggressive, very direct, and you know, second balls, being on the front foot was what the team was all about. You know, we didn't we didn't build a lot at the back. We went forward into the strikers. And it's pretty simple, you know, let, let the good players get the ball in good areas. When it got to the penalty shootout, Presley, who had taken a few penalties, but a defender, Nielsen, a defender. Did you volunteer? Was this already decided? Did you practice the day before? How, how did the selection come about? No, we just, obviously, you go in after the game, you know, so everyone meets in the middle and the, the manager goes around, who wants to take one? Who wants to take a penalty? And I... I've always been the same at penalty kickouts. I would, you know, I'll always put my hand up to take one because, you know, if we're if we're going to lose, I would rather lose because I've put my balls on the line and done something. You know, mm. I would I would never ever sit back and go, right, you know, let's go and hope that somebody else will go and, you know, do the business. So for me, the most important thing: always put your hand up at a, set, at a penalty shootout because, you know, you've got the. the your future is it's in your own hands rather than someone else's. What were you thinking, though, in the final seconds of the game when 
your first choice penalty taker decided <laughs> decided to get himself sent off with the last kick of the game, and the last kick was the last kick was aimed at Derek Townsley. I know, Wheezy, but uh, to be honest, I, I always believed we would win it. You know, we had, we had some when you get into penalty shootouts, it's about character. You know, it's about boys that can handle that moment, boys that can step up and take the pressure and just follow through in the action and just go and do it. You know, that's what it all boils down to. I mean, you look at the group we had there, the boys that, that took the penalties, all good characters. You know, you get Elvis stepping up, first one up, you know, slots it away. Then you'd Pospisil in there as well. So it's all a, it's all about character when you get into these these final moments. Had you decided where you were going to place it? Because you, you took it very coolly, bottom left corner, sent Alan Main the wrong way. Yeah, well, I was watching when, when Elvis went up to take his penalty. Alan Main went very, very early, really early. You know, so I think he can tell right away that when he does that, he's, he's going to gamble on a side. So I went up and basically just slowed down and waited for him to make his movement. And if you look at the, the rest of the penalties, he went the same way every time. You know, so you sometimes get that with goalies. So it's about trying to assess what they do and then make a decision on it. So yeah, just uh, I watched Elvis take his. I saw that mean went down really early to his right hand side. I think it was was his right, whatever it was. And he went down to his left, I think, early. Yeah. And I went across, so I went across him there. You went, yeah, bottom left from, from your perspective. I yeah. just, as I, wrote, as, I walked, as I ran up to it, I was just basically just waiting for him to go. Just delayed that wee bit. He went down and he just slotted in the corner. You're worried about that is when he doesn't go, then you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, did you, a couple of things, that, sorry, uh, Laurie, a couple of things that you've just said there about the tackle. And then about looking at Alan Main from Stephen Presley. These are things that are over and above. These are the little minutiae that not many people might pick up on. Is that served you well in that you're, you're always looking for that little something that can give you an advantage since you become a manager? Yeah, I definitely. No, like, I'll be honest. I, I, I was rubbish, let's be honest. I wasn't, technically wasn't great. I wasn't the fastest, but I had to figure it out. You know, I had to figure it out try and be a step ahead of people, you know. I always felt that, see when you played against, you know, was, especially in the Premier League, you used to play against teams and you could figure out what their, their white players were going to do. You know, you, you could see the trends that they would do, you know, you play against certain players and when they faced you up 1v1, they would maybe, you know, they'd shift over with the left and go with the right and that would be their kind of go-to when they were under pressure. You know, so you, for me it was always about the wee details, about trying to give yourself, you know, a wee bit of an advantage. And it's the same going into management. You, know, you look at, you know, we'll look at the opposition, we'll look individually at the players and you can tell what players are going to do. You know, mm. it was just to amaze me that, what was the boy that played at Dundee that scored all the goals, um, moved inside on his, Stuart, was it Stuart? Greg Stuart. Gre- Greg Stuart. How many times, remember at the start of the season a few years ago, he would come inside from the right-hand side, front up the, the full-back, shift it on his left foot and put it Top left back, yeah. And he used to do it every single week. And you think to yourself, surely the defender has figured it out and he's just going to show them down the line. You know, and it, so it's just wee things like that that you try and show the players. And I think I take that from being a player and just like, you know, having to figure it out. I, yeah. I do believe that, you know, nine times out of ten, the, the, the better managers haven't been better players because the good managers, like I, I had Paulo Souza when I was doing at Leicester. And Paulo was like double Champions League winner with Juventus and um, Borussia Dortmund. And 
he just couldn't get his head. He's obviously a lot better now because this was when he first just came into coaching because he was at QPR and then he came with Leicester. But he couldn't get his head around how we couldn't do what he used to be able to do. Yeah. So he'd be look, at Frank, look at look at Frank Soze in that season at Hibs. I mean, whether it was because he'd come for the changing or whatever, but a world class player and and couldn't just couldn't he be a manager for whatever reason. And I listened to John Collins' interview on Radio Scotland, the podcast, a couple of weeks ago, and. I don't, I don't think John will ever be a manager in Scottish football again, simply because the expectation level, maybe he's, he's trying to compare the players <laughs> he's dealing with with, um, with himself and the ability that he thinks he had that everyone else should have. Can't do enough sit-ups for him, basically. Pulo said to, to me once, one day we were training, it was pre-season, and he was like, we were doing this thing, and he got the ball, and he zinged it like about 60 yards onto a sixpence. And he was like to me, how, how, how can you not see that? And I was like, Gaffer, but I've not got two Champions League medals. <laughs> I'm rubbish. I mean, so I can't do that. And it was like he, he just couldn't get his head round that we were not at the same level as him. Yeah. I think a lot of the time that's, or some of the time that can be an issue for the top players when they come into management. That's why, you know, the, from my experience, a lot of the time it's the ones that aren't, aren't great that have had to figure it out that can relate a bit more to the players. It's interesting you're talking about, obviously, and Mark highlighted it looking for these little ways to get an edge, going over and above what maybe all, a lot of players would do. Even back then, so 2006, or even the years afterwards when you were still playing, did you decide that you wanted to go into management coaching? Was it something that you thought about quite early on? To be fair, Lebanon, Hearts was a great club to start as a young kid at. You know, firstly, when I went in there in with 96, part of the education that you did was you did your coaching badges. So we did like a, it was like early touches and level E, you know, the real basics. But we used to go around to, I can't remember, what's the, Balgreen Primary School, I think it was, just yep. around the corner from Tynecastle. So we used to go there once or twice a week and coach the kids. So we'd be, we'd be like 16 and we'd be coaching the primary school kids. So that gave you an education and try to kind of become a bit of a coach. But the biggest thing for me was the players that I had at the time, at the start of my career. You know, we had John Robertson, John Cahoon, Neil Poynton, Big Slim. You know, we had Gary McKay, we had Craig Levine. You know, we had some real leaders in the group and a lot of guys that have gone into coaching, you know, management. And I always felt that was that was something that, that Hearts produced, you know, even to an extent, you know, a couple of years ago when we had we Matt Bradley was at the juniors, Robbie Horn was managing, Paul Ritchie's out there, Al McManus is in it, St Mum. You know, Cal was doing a wee bit. There's, there's so many guys that have been at Hearts that have progressed into management. Gary Naismith, and Alan Johnson, you know, Paul Hartley, Stephen Presley. It, it was always, I always felt it was like a breeding ground for, for coaches and managers as they went mm-hmm. on. Because one of the things for me was the standards that was demanded at Hearts and the people that, that were at the club. So yeah, it was, I was very lucky in that the environment I was in, it was a, it was a kind of coaching and, and educational you know, environment because the senior players were absolutely brilliant to me, honestly. Like, so good. You know, you learn, you know, as a coach, you can tell players all you want. You can talk to them and show them videos, but see if they go out there and they play beside an international football player in a reserve game and the international football player talks them through the game. That's worth hundreds of hours of coaching. And I always remember, like, playing the reserves with, with Robbo and he would say to me, just put it in there. And I'd be like, well, there's nobody that says, no, your job's to put it there. It's his job to get there. And when that comes from a, an international player, a guy that's scored like 
hundreds of goals. What do you do as a 16-year-old boy? You do exactly what he says, and it was the right thing to do. So for me, the, the, the education of these senior players was so good, and it's something that I tried to do when I was older as well, that you know, as a, a senior player, you have a responsibility to, to help the young players, educate them and bring them through. And that was a big thing at Hearts, and, and it still is as well. You know, but the senior players that we've got in the squad, I would expect them to, to coach and educate the young ones. I think it's a good time to start going into some of some of maybe current day. Um, I kind of link between the two things. Those you and Pringle mentioned, you know, with all those managers and coaches you worked at, worked under at Hearts. Is there any particular things that you took and you've uh, and you've now put into your own style and your own sessions? You mentioned Graham Ricks having such an eye for the, the detail and things from a coaching side of things. What have you taken from these managers that you worked under? It's a question you get asked all the time, and I, I don't think you take exact things with people. I think it's your interpretation of what they did, and that might be something they did really well, or it might be something they did really badly, and it's your interpretation on it. I think that, in my opinion, as a as a manager, you have to be yourself. You know, there has to be an authenticity to you to the players. So I'll make decisions that I think are right, but I'm probably influenced by you know previous managers I've had and how I've seen things done. So I think if you try and you know, replicate exactly what somebody does, you're never going to be authentic in what you're doing. So I always try to make the decision myself. And yeah, look, there's no doubt that you'll be influenced and biased by what's happened previously because you know, I've been I've been lucky enough to work under some like, brilliant managers. You know, I've had Walter Smith, Sven Goran Eriksson, I've been Mark Warburton as well. You know, I could go on for hours talking about some of the stuff that these guys did. You know, I'd... Jim Jeffries for a, for a number of years as well. And everyone's got different ways of managing players and you have to take the good stuff and adapt it to the way that, that you want to come across. So you didn't think about getting those wheelbarrow races that Edward Malafi had you We Edward with Malafi, you know, <laughs> rabbit punching the cloth official, never been seen again. So <laughs> there's some story, that's for another podcast, to be honest with you guys, because I could tell you a few stories about that time. By the way, before we, we kind of go on to, mo- to modern day, did you ever get, um, what's the best word to use here? Those weirdos with the pyjamas and the sticks, did they ever poke and prod you? Yes, dude, we, had, um, we had Rita with a golden stick for a while, so <laughs> Rita was, uh, you probably heard it before. Used, used to have to go the head, that's the headline of this podcast, Rita and the golden stick. <laughs> so we, we had to, on a Friday, you had to go into the doctor's room at Rickerton, and you had to stripped down into your underwear, so just your pants. And this Rita was a Russian woman that didn't speak any English. So she would stand there and she would have this golden stick and she would touch all your joints and then she would bark orders on the, to this era, Russian woman on the computer and she would send the emails away and then it would come back and tell you how long you could play in a game. So she said that you could only play 62 minutes. You had to come off at 62 minutes. And that's 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 what was happening. And then we had Pajama Man, who was uh, came on the pre-season tour, and Pajama Man could treat you without touching you. So you had to just you had to lie there, and Pajama Man would do like his Mister Miyagi stuff over the top of you, and then he would tell you he would tell you there was something wrong with you, even though there was he didn't feel anything wrong, and then he would tell you how he'd fixed it. And you know, like, it was uh, yeah, there was a few there's a few stories. That's just the tip of the iceberg as well. Oh Jesus. Thank you. Um, right, the seamless transition. 
How did your return to Tynecastle first come about last month? Uh, obviously, we'd, we'd been preparing stuff for Dundee United. We'd just come back for our first week training, so we're still doing the kind of socially distance stuff, and we're just prepping for that. And then I got a phone call on the, the Sunday morning to say, you know, we've been approached by Hearts. Do you want to go back for Tony? So I said to him, well, I'm going to need a wee bit of time to think about this. It's a big decision. So I went away, had a thought about it. Had a think about it and then phoned Tony back and said, Look, I want to speak to him. And then things just progressed from there. So I spoke to Anne and then moved forward. So it was one of them that came out of the blue, but you can't knock back hearts at any point, I don't think. You know, I know the, the club, I know the history of the club. I've been there before as a player and lately we've been speaking about for this last hour and a half. It's, it's a phenomenal establishment. And even just coming back, I think previously when I was here before, you don't you don't realise the size and the extent of the club until you come away at times. And it's probably one of the reasons that you know so many players and managers and fans all come back again because you realise once you're away what you've got. So for me, it was a it was a quick decision. I spoke to my wife, said, "Look, this is what we've done. Uh, I made a decision to go back." She was delighted because we don't need to move house. You know, which is usually what happens when you, you move managerial jobs. <laughs> and it's just been a case of, you know, trying to, trying to get things organised now. What do you think has changed in the Robbie Nielsen as a manager now compared to first time around at Hearts? Uh, I think, having gone down south, I'm better at dealing with different individuals, I think. I think when you... In Scotland, when I was here previously, it was very much a Scottish dressing room. We had a few foreign guys, but they were pretty British. You know, the same kind of mentality as me, same kind of you know ideas as me. But going down south and managing different cultures, different characters, you know, it makes you you think more about how you deal with people. You think you know more about how you you know how how at times we can we'll have a conversation and I'll have my idea of how that conversations went. But a lot of time we don't think about how that they're a person at the end of the conversations perceived that. So I think I, I think a lot more about how I'm dealing with players and how I speak to players and how that is perceived and how we build a relationship. Because you know, nowadays, the long gone are the days where it was a authoritative leadership where you, you tell them, right, this is what you're doing and that's all you'll do. Just go on with it. Now the, the, the players are the most important people at the football club. And my job is to, to try and make them better. My job is to try and give a platform to improve and, you know, show what they can do on a football pitch. So I think from that aspect, I've definitely developed that side of it. I think, you know, obviously, I've got a lot more experience now of being, when I first came in at Hearts, I hadn't managed a first team before, you know, but now I've been there for six, seven years now, 250, 300 games under my belt. So you have that experience as well. So it's, uh, yeah, I feel in a lot better place coming back in now. What's your managerial philosophy, Rob? I remember when you were in charge of the under-20s, your team was really, really attractive to watch, fun to watch. Some people have said at times you can maybe be too defensive. Over all those games, what's your managerial philosophy you will take into being the manager of Hearts second time round? I think the, the philosophy, people talk about philosophy all the time, Matt, but for me, your, your one, number one job as a manager on first team level is to win football matches. That's mm-hmm. it. You know, you've got to find a way to win football matches. And the second part of it is that I have to watch it. So I'm the guy that has to stand at the side in the pouring rain. So you want to try and enjoy it. You know, you want to be out there and you want to you know, produce an enjoyable game where the players, first and foremost, enjoy playing and the fans enjoy watching it as well. And I think, like, for me, it's just 
a little bit like the George Burley style of, you know, as a, as a Hearts player, as a coach, we should be going into every game, you know, positive, going out to win, no matter whether you're playing against the old firm or whether you're playing against a, a championship lower end team. You know, so for me, it's about entertaining the fans as much as you can. The players enjoying it and winning football matches. So, like, when people talk about philosophies, in my opinion, the only managers that can have philosophies are the managers that can afford to buy the players in that can implement it. You know, if you can go out and spend £70 million on a right back, you're going to be able to implement your philosophy. But if, you, if you're going to have to go and you know, work with the players that you've got, you have to make them comfortable. You have to allow them to play to the level that they can play. If you're going to ask them to do something that they can't do, they're going to be uncomfortable, they're not going to play well, they're not going to enjoy it, they're not going to put a performance in. So going back into hearts, for me, we have to find a style of play that suits the players, suits the club and is entertaining and wins football matches. Do you have anything from your first spell of hearts that you regret or would do differently if you could uh, have a second shot at it, be it a single game or, or a signing or something? No, it's, it's like, you, you look back, if you changed anything and I wouldn't be in this situation I'm just now. You know, so everything, for me, it's everything there was there for a reason. It gets you at a certain level and then you come back and you go and work again. So, you know, there was... There was players that I maybe should have signed. There's a few players that I shouldn't have signed as well. You know, so looking back, that's always the most difficult bit. There was games that we, you know, we lost that maybe we should have won. And, but then on the other side, there was games that we, we won and we should have lost. So, you know, it's hard to look back and go, right, this is, I'd have preferred to have done this or done that. Like when you, you want to win every game and you want to win every game 3 or 4 now, but ultimately in football, it's not like that. What does the Edinburgh Derby mean to you, Rob? Biggest game of the season most important game of the season you know it can build momentum it can you know for the fans it's you know it's that is the the ultimate fixture in the calendar you know I think if you asked a fan would you rather play a game and win for the title or would you rather play a game and turn over hips I think they would probably pick the latter you know so it's important that the players understand that the coaches understand that you know and I certainly do you know it's for me you know we have a one of the reasons I wanted to come back was we have a semi-final against them in the, at Hamden, whenever it will be, November, December. And for me, it's a phenomenal game to be involved in. So, yeah, for, it's, it's all about winning derbies. That's what I was going to ask you. If you had your preference, Hamden or Murrayfield? Hamden. Okay. I think you get, although the atmosphere at Hamden is not brilliant, I've played it at Murrayfield and it's, you know, I, I didn't enjoy playing there. I think it's too far away from the you know, you've got the running track at one end, it's a bit lopsided. It's, for me, I would, I would rather go through to Hamden. You know, I think it's... it's because it's closer to the house, isn't it? Because you're lazy. You know what it's <laughs> It's the football venue, in it? You know, I just like... Yeah. I don't know if you guys went to the Murrayfield games, but, you know, it just... It, was, it just didn't feel... It didn't feel great. Rob, I was at, I was at the closed-door game. Robinson invited me way back mm-hmm. when Hearts played Dundee. I think you might have been at the team at, at the time. And it was a nil-nil draw or something. It was the first game and he was going on about how we're going, to, we're going to put all the curtains over the top tier and we're going to make the bottom tier the bowl and everything. This is when he was trying to sell the, the stadium. It yeah. didn't work then. For a one-off game, then fine. Um, but I, I suppose a lot depends on, on the situation the country finds itself in when the semi-final takes place and whether you want however many thousand going through to Glasgow if they're allowed to or if you're, you have a permission to do certain uh, number of fans at Murrayfield. But... But that if, depends on that, doesn't it? If there was a restriction on the fans and we only get a certain number, I would say we stay at Murrayfield because it's yes, close. Yes. 
you know, you, to be honest, you'll probably get more fans in if it's a percentage of the gate. You know, but if it was a full house, I think Hamden would be the place. Quickly go through a couple of questions we got. Uh, John Smith message, this is about playing again. Who was the best player you played alongside while at Hearts? I don't know. That's a difficult one, that, to be honest with you, Laurie. Like, uh, one, one of the, one, the obscure ones that I'd say sometimes is the boy uh, Vincent Garan. Oh, he was a player. Me, Vinny was like, he, honest, like, so he, obviously you've got your usual ones, you've got like Tacky who was top, Rudy was top, you know, you've got guys like me, Terry was top as well, and Big Davey Weir when he was playing as well. So there's a, a number of top players, but Vincent was one that, he was at PSG for years, and I think he came over because he was the best mates with Big Jill, we say. And he came to training, like, on it, he was like, he looked about 55, right? <laughs> Jenny, old guy. And, uh, but he couldn't get near him, could not get the ball off him, couldn't get near him in training, couldn't run, but he, he just kept finding space all the time. And he was just technically so good. And it just made you realise, like, how good must he have been in his prime? Because we, we had him when he was, like, probably, I think, late 30s or something, you know, at the end of his career. So I... I I just thought he was like top, and he was probably the first foreign one that came in that was like, you know, that I thought was like totally different, and he'd been at the top level. How important is the foundation of Hearts? Well, the foundation of Hearts is Hearts, in my opinion. You know, it's the fans. You know, and it's the the, the lifeblood of the, the the club. You know, it's something that I reiterated when I was at the, to the players when I was there before, and it's something I'll do again. That you know, the, the foundation of Hearts is Hearts Football Club. You know, if, if the foundation were not there, none of the players or the staff would be there. So it's so important. You know, I know speaking to Anne that, you know, in this period that we're the difficult period we're having at the moment, you know, the subscriptions have went up, I think, 1,500. So it just shows you that, you know, the, one, the size of the club, but the backing that it gets from the fans. So, yeah, for me, it's, it's it is, the foundation is hearts, basically. And the final question for me, fast forward three years, duration of your contract. What would you consider success for Hearts in that time? European football, cup win, challenge at the top end of the league. Pretty yeah. simple. Just need to go and do it now. It's mm-hmm. a good answer. Um, well, well, thank you for taking the time to come on, Robbie. Really appreciate it. Love and um, I'll, I'll, I'll see you around um, Tynecastle, I'm sure, whenever uh, football restarts. Um, so 249 appearances as a player at Hearts, two goals, one Scottish Cup win, 100. That's some ratio. I've seen a few strikers that are worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that, doesn't include, that doesn't include his cup final penalty, though. Obviously not. That's not how statistics work. <laughs> I, count, I, I count the penalties. Don't worry about that. I count them as well. yeah, you, count, you count the ones in training as well. You, you have to, Robbie, if you've got one goal every, what, 100 and... 25 games or whatever it might be um, but we're looking forward to adding to your 106 games as manager in the coming season and and yeah really good to t- talk with you and uh, we'll see you soon thanks Laurie cheers Mark take care thanks guys cheers Robbie bye bye so that was Robbie Nielsen chatting to Scarves around the funnel about his time on the field at Hearts about his his time on the on the sidelines now at Hearts, and um, I really enjoyed that, Mark. Yeah, really good, and a lot of stuff there I hadn't heard before as well, Laurie. Indeed, some <laughs> some things that were elaborated on that I heard Rita and her golden sticks, <laughs> pajama man. Yeah. 
I mean, honestly, I, uh, when he was going through what Burley's team, the opposition team was, I was. Do you remember shite. what was it? Good guy, good guy, wank, good guy, wank. Whatever that was. That was from. Jeez. It's it's so many. It's, by the way, that's so many more stories that we can get back on. Um, maybe later in the year or next year to uh, to talk more about some of the stuff. There's there's books to be written. Oh yes, for for sure. But you just it's it's funny, you know. You can think. I guess it's an interesting approach, you know, when there's this, these players who don't know anything about Scottish football, like Robbie said, and it's like, well, let's just big them up, give them confidence. Aye, if all the players you're playing against are shite, you know. Aye, yeah, you'll you'll have him. He's crap. He's rubbish. And I, obviously, that's only going to go so far. But um, it must do wonders for mentality players if they go out genuinely thinking, mm-hmm. oh, well, this lot are apparently rubbish. So mm-hmm. what have I got to lose? Um, yeah, you've got, to have, you've got to have the respect to the players because you, you need them to believe what you're saying as well. And Robbie going through all that to, to Stephen Mason, whoever, isn't, isn't going to wash. But I think what we've heard from Robbie there, and as he said, there are certain things from George Burley's management that he will, he will use to implement. Robbie must have... Uh, Robbie must have... <laughs> I'm getting my Robbies <laughs> mixed up. Robbie Nielsen will never be the guy who just copies someone else. Um, we've seen him, we, we, we've all been involved with him, whether it's fans, media, or, or whatever, to know that he's his own man. And that's why I think when it was really interesting, when he was talking about the little things that he takes, and, and I love the fact that he believes his level as a footballer, I mean, God, he, he did something that, that all of us would have loved to have done and, and pulled on a Hearts jersey all those, all those times. But he thinks that the best managers are the ones that have got to work harder who weren't the best players and it's the little things that he was telling about. Um, so he'll take bits from Burley and, and, as he said, bits from other managers that he's had. But ultimately, um, that will be the up to 49% because the majority, whether it's 51% or above, will be what Robbie believes is, is the right thing to do. I think we're getting a better manager in this time around. Um, a manager with a long way to go. He's, he's still young, but a manager who knows is desperate to succeed Look at his answer to the question in three years' time, where do you hope Hearts will be European football, a cup win? Look, we're going to be playing in the championship. So he wants to come straight up, then to finish high, hopefully get into Europe um, as far as the the, the third year is concerned. Exactly. And you know what? I've got no issue if after three years, Robbie Nielsen leaves Hearts and gets a really good job elsewhere. Because the only way if he's doing that is if he's a big success at Hearts. Bring that on. Yeah. And, you know... We've all, we've all got things that we've, we've criticised managers about, and I've criticised Robbie Nielsen about certain things. But what you can't deny is the fact that he, he was overall a successful manager because he won the championship at a canter up against the Rangers and Hibs sides who were at a very good level for the championship. He came up, finished third, first season back up, got Hearts back into Europe, and they were sitting second. And of course, there are other things that there were certain things that. Didn't go right, and um, I was hoping I might prod some of that out of him when we were chatting, but he wasn't giving anything away, so he's um, he's obviously adept at making sure he gives a nice diplomatic answer. But um, it was good to hear from him. Obviously, we were joking about his scoring record, which means I didn't get on to his managerial record, which was 106 games as Hearts boss, 58% win ratio, only bettered at this stage by the manager who he played under, George Burley, and he only had 10 games, so it's maybe got to be taken with a certain pinch of salt. But, uh, yeah, we've, 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 got, we've got a self-deprecating coach who I think has the respect of the players, likes to play football. That is the aspect of it. Is he too defensive? He'll not be in the championship. So I'm looking forward to, to this. We'll all make mistakes going forward. Robbie will make mistakes. But 
I'm, I'm optimistic about the season ahead um, with, with a good guy in charge. Indeed. So um, hopefully we'll we'll get him back on at some point and we'll maybe hear more about Pajama Man and Rita's golden sticks and, and who knows what else. Well, thank you for tuning in. Um, we'll be back next week with uh, more Scarves Around the Funnel. Shut down.